This episode of Finding Demo Surf Fishing is being brought to you by Ninja Tackle. Go over to ninjatackleva.com and take a look at the website that is completely filled with great stuff. You guys know I use the Ninja Dagger rods. I use the 7-footer all the way up to the 12-footer. If you haven't been paying attention on there, he just released or will be releasing depends on that's how you look at it uh a brand new 13 footer so another rod coming out it's gonna be really nice it's just got tested jack uh went out and tested it with yakking with jack had good things to say so new one there if you need rigs he's got them reels totally covered firearm accessories or anything like that yeah he's got it in the shop ninjatackleva.com easy quick shipping phenomenal customer service you can't go wrong Welcome back to a new episode in a new week. And this one's great because in reality, we're not going anywhere. We're staying here in the panhandle of Florida. We're just driving right down the street, actually. That's right. This week, we're talking with Bird of Prey Fishing. And Brian Arnold, if you haven't met him before at any of the weigh-ins, you're, you've missed out. Phenomenal dude. Great to have a conversation with. And he's making a hell of a lot of great products. Uh, you can see his stuff on hell. I mean, yakking with Jack, I brought him up earlier. Jack uses it. Lots of stuff in there. Several other great YouTube personalities have it. You can find it in the local tackle shops and you can get it online. This stuff is great. So this week we're going to talk all about his stuff. And we're going to, of course, you know me, I'm going to dial it all the way back because that's what I do. We're going to get into his whole story. Yeah, make it weird. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Brian. I'm glad to have you on finally, man. It's awesome, Brian. Thanks for having me, man. <laughs> Only took us what a year and a half. Yeah, yeah at least the COVID. Um man, it's been like one one hurdle after another to get through finally here. <laughs> yeah, and it's and you've just grown and grown and grown from when I first met you when it was the bottom sweepers and a couple of jig heads. And, you know, it was just a bunch of different little things. And all of a sudden now, holy crap, it has expanded to so many different levels. And you're just crushing it in the market, man. So many great, so many great things, great products. People have had nothing but great things to say. Um, we were talking pre-show. My neighbor works on Destiny. Um, his boat, I know they use your gear. It's that's that's a huge accomplishment right there, man. I appreciate that, man. Um, it, it's taken a long time. I mean, I think a lot of people have started using us in the last few years because we've kind of been in the background scene of things. Um, you know, most people when they go buy lead weights, they don't they don't think, oh, who who made these lead weights, right? Like that's right. <laughs> a name brand pyramid weight or a name brand egg weight, you know just is what it is, but, um, yeah, it's been the last few years, we've really seen a lot of growth and a lot of it's just been due to having to find, um, like niche products that our employees can manufacture year round. That's where a lot of the rigging comes into the sheep's head jigs. Uh, you know, if it was just, you know, keeping it in the family, yes, we could run this just throughout the summertime. And then, you know, come September, October, as people start getting ready to deer hunting, 
deer season comes around, yeah, we could just let it, you know, taper off. But when you got employees, they've got year round bills. So you got to make have your year round income. Uh, yeah. so that's, you know, that's a big aspect to it. Um, you know, pretty much everybody on our staff has got, you know, their young families, got kids to feed. And so you've really got to take that into consideration um, when you're making products or making sure that they're going to sell, you know, to a wide range of audience that's willing to buy them year round. And that's a, that's a big factor to it. Well, you're, you're being successful. It's very apparent. So we're good. I mean, there's nothing bad there. So let's get into it, man. Let's get right into the questions. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us your story and what got you into fishing though. Ooh, well, definitely my dad got me into fishing. Uh, me and my brother both. Um, he was a biologist at the FWC for 35 years at the uh, Blackwater Fisheries Center in Holt, Florida. Uh, he's primarily worked on uh, raising striped bass, hybrid striped bass, you know, a little bit of a uh, largemouth catfish, primarily channel catfish. Um, you know, a few other species here or there as they came around, but his primary focus was on stripers and hybrids. And basically he started getting me and my brother involved in fishing when we were really young. Um, you know, I think my first fishing trip was to Fort Pickens catching pinfish and uh, probably about the time I was in first or second grade, they had these kids fishing events that they used to host. Um, they'd fill like three or four of our lakes with uh, hybrids and a few channel catfish and they let kids come out and families bring their kids. And, uh, you know, I think it's like for like five, 10 bucks, you know, you could load the cooler down with, you know, hybrids or catfish out of a pond. And, you know, it's one of those things making memories as a kid. And, uh, the, the stripers and his work with those definitely played a huge part in my background knowledge of fishing and getting into or creating bird of prey. Um, probably about the time I was in late elementary school, um, early middle school, we uh, really started getting into flounder fishing a lot. And well, fishing for flounder, if you're not losing jigs, you're, you're not, you know, down there where they're at. And so, you know, with me, my dad, and my brother, we'd go out and, you know, on average trip, you're losing, you know, 20, 30 jig heads. That adds up pretty quick. And so then also we'd go on these striped bass fishing trips where we'd go catch broodfish for them to spawn. And we'd use a lot of these uh, hex head jigs that we make for like Spanish and uh, Bonita and Mahi and uh, hand tied them at that point in time. You'd lose a lot of those fishing for your stripers around some of the dams, you know, a lot of debris on the bottom, you're bouncing them up and down, act like shad. And, um, so anyways, probably around the time I was in fifth or sixth grade, he taught us how to start making tackle, start off with just tying jigs. And um, then we learned to paint them, powder coat them. And from there we learned to pour them lastly. And um, about eighth grade for me, I started making them and I want to say it was Gulf Breeze Bait and Tackle was the first place we ever sold them to. Um, shout out to Victor uh, for trusting us with getting some product in there. Um, it was hex heads and then uh, tied pompano jigs. We used to make a lot of those little egghead spearheads. Uh, we picked up 
uh, Pensacola Beach Fishing Pier, and then uh, moved on to Broxton Outdoors. Uh, used to be in Navarre, and uh, started growing from there. About the time I was in tenth grade, uh, Captain he's still in business. He works with uh, Adam Peoples a lot down towards your direction. Uh, Kirk Priestall is his name. Um, he came to me and asked about making some six ounce and eight ounce egg weights, and uh, I just I jumped the gun. I was like, "Yeah, we absolutely can make them." I don't think we had a mold at the time that could make them. So, yeah, had to had to look up a do it mold for six and eight ounce egg weights, and I think at the time our um, our lead pot held like maybe ten pounds, oh, twenty. No. Pounds. This was before all the like the lee pots got real popular. We were just using a <laughs> vein fish cooker and you know pouring them up by hand, and uh, it's from there it's just grown into a monster. Uh, yeah. You know, our, I'd say our primary focus is on the lead. Uh, we incorporated 2012, right after I graduated high school. Um, and so that was a that was a big shift for us. I I realized really quickly in high school when I got my first truck that I could either go work a part time job, make a minimum wage, or I could make tackle, sell it myself, and pay my own bills. And so, you know, pretty quickly, is like, okay, this is a much better route to take. You know, work for yourself, you're your own boss, you make your own hours. If you need to make extra money, you know, it's on you. Crank out the extra time. And um, it ended up, it was such a blessing because it put me and my wife uh, through college, you know, paid all of our bills really allowed us to save up a down payment for our first house. And uh, we'd already had, uh, we had a, our, our first daughter, you know, pretty early on. And, um, you know, just being able to support them, it was such a bonus. I ended up spending from 2012 to 2019 going to college on and off as an engineer. And, um, it was primarily at PSC. I got my, uh, general AA out there. And then um, I went on the UWF and started off electrical engineering and realized about halfway through, I like working with my hands more and switched over to mechanical. And so it took me a while to get my degree working part-time and going to school part-time and switching back and forth. But what kept us in with Bird of Prey was really that, that time period I was in college, I realized how big of a benefit this was for my family and us and not going into, you know, any kind of student loan debt. And then when I got through and I graduated UWF in that time period, I'd met, you know, 50, 60 of the brightest minds from Pensacola, you know, working their way through engineering school. And, you know, by the time I graduate, there's only three of us left. Uh, everybody else has had to move away because there's no jobs here. And I was like, yeah, there's, there's, there's something wrong with this situation. You can't just, you know, spend all this time and money going through school and then find out, oh, man, you know, I got I have to leave my family, leave you know, Pensacola and go get a job elsewhere. And you see all these people who retire and move here to Pensacola. There's a reason for that. It's an awesome place. And um, I just I felt that like, hey, this is my opportunity to, you know, grow something that will hopefully you know, start giving back to the community you know, in a, in a positive manner in a few years. I work um, also part-time for an engineering firm here in Pensacola. I'm a 
you know, combination of research material and mechanical engineer for them. And I've had the opportunity to go and really see a lot of different manufacturing operations throughout the Southeast. And they give me a lot of hope for the United States. Um, these are generally farm, um, farm towns where they've sent one son or daughter to school, become an engineer or a machinist. Uh, they save up, you know, or sell, you know, a portion of a farm to open up a machine shop or, uh, um, you know, some sort of little engineering operation. And from there, they just grow into, you know, you know, one big facility after another. And a lot of this is all based around a combination of uh, medical parts industry, automotive industry, defense industry. But I see the possibilities there of bringing a lot of that kind of automated manufacturing to Pensacola and specifically geared towards the fishing tackle industry. Um, you know, so much of our fishing tackle these days is, you know, it's made over in China and or made overseas in general. Most of it comes from China. And I tell people all the time who are starting off, you know, fishing tackle careers that, you know, if you're going to make something, it's not me versus you or the guy down the road. It's all of us versus China. Um, you, know, it's, right. it's, you know, trying to stay focused there. But, um, yeah, I mean, to your question about how we got started and kind of our story, that's, I'd say that's the broad aspects of it. Right now, I'm blessed. I've got my brother here working with us, and um, you know it's been a blessing to keep it in the family here and um, continue to grow slowly but surely. Yeah, I mean, you guys are doing quite the growth, and it's it's very nice. So we're actually going to jump right into the company. Um, we can leave the other questions out. We're just going to get right into the business model here, and you already nailed the first two questions, so we're going to get into <laughs> the third one. Could you highlight some of your flagship products and their unique features that anglers might find intriguing? Yeah, um, I think the best way to answer this question would be like to start off at the beginning of the year. We, we kind of focus our shop on, you know, the seasonal aspects of fishing. And so, well, really right now, um, you know, we're in the big transition. If you think of, think of August going into September, right now we're really shutting down a lot of our bulk or heavy lead operations um, and transitioning mainly to sheep's head jigs. And uh, we'll do a good bit of um, like bull red jigs and striped bass jigs. Um, anything, any of our bullet jigs from like three quarter ounce up to three ounce, we sell a lot of those from now to like really the end of December, beginning of January. Um, and they're just general, you know, you know, lead bullet jig painted white, red, chartreuse. Uh, we sell a few pink, few yellow, a lot of plain. Uh, just put with like a, you know, anywhere from like a six inch to eight inch curly tail grub. Guys are using for uh, bull reds or for striped bass on the East Coast. Um, the sheep's head jigs, that's been one of our, our, probably one of our largest selling items outside of lead. We've got two styles of them. We've got our, um, you got a swing jig style, which is a it's a football shape. It's got a free swinging hook on the back of it. We've got a couple options there. Um, we'll have a customer to pick or store to pick. We offer a pretty wide variety of colors on them, depending on the conditions that you're fishing. 
from like clear water to brackish water or to match up more to the bait. Um, and if there was anything I wish I could change, I would never have called them actual sheep's head jigs. <laughs> they target so many different species of fish with them. Uh, yeah. we, we sold tons of them this summer for guys uh, targeting black snapper. Yeah, that's been one of the biggest things is in the last couple of years, there's more and more anglers targeting mangroves. And um, the sheep's head jigs, especially the, uh, the swing jig versions of them, work really well with a live bait on the back of them. Uh, we'll sell a good bit of them with a uh, kale hook option that we, we offer at wholesale right now, not retail. And um, we send a lot of those like Jacksonville and the East Coast for guys flounder fishing. Um, I think even Emerald Coast Bait and Tackle now carries them um, throughout the wintertime for our uh, Gulf flounder here. Uh, but that'll be the big focus of what we what we target for the next few months. But we'll have a little bit of a fall push for um, for pompano rigs. Uh, usually October, you know, we'll get a few stores, uh, you know, add some pompano rigs, pompano jigs. Um, since 2018, we've really been out of the the uh, jig tying game. Um, we're hoping that within the next six months to a year. We're going to be back involved in that. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about that. That was what we started off with. And it's something that just, you know, having to work through a lot of kinks of, you know, how do you, how do you keep up quality on a hand-tied product with multiple employees who have different tying styles, um, just all the different human errors that come into that. You know, how do you keep, when a customer picks up one jig, the jig beside it looks, you know, as close to possible as that one. Um, or consistency of like, if a customer goes into a shop, picks up one hex head or a pompano jig and goes to the store down the street, picks up another one, you know, there's, there's the logistics aspects to it. Um, but we'll sell some of the pompano rigs and jigs, usually around October through, you know, up to about Thanksgiving. Um, by then, you know, it's gotten too cold and it's pretty much on to bull reds and sheep sedge from there to really like, we'll sell the sheep sedge jigs in large quantities all the way up through about the end of March, beginning of April. And then it starts ta tapering back off to the lead weights quite a bit. Um, once we get into January, we always have a big push of guys who are getting out of deer season um, in the rut and they're getting their boats ready. And so they always usually end up doing some uh, uh, deep drop trips. We saw a lot of uh, deep dropping weights and rigs during that time of year. Um, and then usually sometime around middle of March, that's when a lot of our inshore stuff picks up. Uh, all the like smaller bullet jigs and sparky jigs and herring jigs that we sell for guys fishing like trout, redfish, flounder, uh, we'll start getting all the store orders first, and then the recreational orders, orders will come in, retail orders will come in online. And really from, I would say also about the time the sheep set jigs in, that's when everybody really switches back to pompano fishing. And we'll always have some you know pretty large orders come in around April, May for pompano rigs. Um, that's when a lot of the other guys who make rigs will stop. Um, they stop tying themselves and they're focused on fishing. And so we'll come up behind and, you know, pick up whatever slack is left over. Um, you know, it's one of those things I tell people, 
we get a lot of customers who um who come to us saying like hey man are you gonna be upset if we start making pompano rigs and like man you're, there's not enough of them you can never you never make too many pompano rigs there's always gonna be somebody running out or somebody getting out of it um and there's been a few guys i gotta give them a lot of credit like uh friskies and um uh, I just forgot his name. The um, salties. Yeah, so they, they they really stuck with it. Um, you know, shout out to both of them. This is not it's not easy um, staying involved in any of this for a prolonged period of time. And you know, it's it's gotten to the point where with like online sales, tackle stores that aren't evolving. You know, we see. I, I'd say on average, we see one tackle store a year. But, is a customer of ours that closes down and we probably see two or three, you know, small garage manufacturers, you know, they, they'll shut down a year also. And um, yeah, it's, it's sad to see it, but it's, you know, the reality of it, it's, it's hard to make a living manufacturing things in the U S right now. Um, you know, so those guys who you see, you know, they've figured out their, their pathway to make it happen, you know, give them credit. It's, it's hard work. It ain't easy. Um, I want to steal a piece of knowledge because you, you said yeah. it, and I know my brain's going to forget it. So you you talked about the sheep's head jigs, but you talked about differences with clean water, brackish mm-hmm. water. What have you found has been the color? The, what's the what's the secret code, man? What What is it? <laughs> uh, so I really need to make it. We started a YouTube channel. Uh, we've been so busy. I really haven't had to do much with it, but this is definitely one of the videos I'll be putting out soon is a breakdown of all the colors we've really we eliminated quite a few colors over the last few years just focusing on those that we've seen really take off for different conditions and so a quick breakdown would be use a lot of the darker colors for more of your like i call your clear brackish water so this time of year you'll see a lot of the kayak guys they're still targeting your sheep set kind of like back up in the marshes um, the upper portions of your bays, that's, you know, that's typically, you know, a lot of, you'll see a lot of like eight ounce through, you know, probably the heaviest we'll sell this time of year is really like, you know, three eighths to half ounce. We don't see many of the three quarter and one ounce sold comparatively. So a lighter head and then the color patterns that seem to work best for those conditions are like our copper head, uh, root beer, fiddler crab, you know, the somewhat darker patterns um, with maybe a little bit of glitter or shine flashing to them. Now you go back towards the West, towards, um, you know, Mississippi, Louisiana, a lot of those guys like the really bright colors. I mean, they want chartreuse, pink, disco gold, but they're also fishing in water. It's, you know, pretty much like mud, you know, year round. Um, so for, you know, focusing on our region, I would say most of Florida right now with, the sheep's head being, you know, still, you know, really for the next few months, they'll still be in a pattern of, you know, holding towards the back portions and upper portions of bays. Those darker colors are really going to work a lot better. Um, as you transition more towards the winter time, the fish start moving down lower in the bay or fishing area, like, you know, it's got a lot of gulf, really clean water. That's when we see a lot of the, um, what I call the sand flea baits. If you notice that we've got like our sand flea colored uh, jig and we've got a few options of it with other colors on it, like our um, 
got one we call our purpleback fiddler. It's very popular. Gulf breeze fiddler. Um, we got a ghost shrimp color. That's when those colors really start becoming the dominant sellers. As you get into that cleaner water, um, you know something that looks a little bit more natural. I think to the fish, and then you know we also start seeing the the weight of them go up quite a bit. And obviously, if you're fishing in the Gulf, a lot more current. You need something heavier. If you're fishing towards any of the major passes around here, a lot more current. That's when you see the three quarter and the one ounce. Um, you know, those sales really go through the roof. Um, you know, up to about mid-December, I was trying to think about this. Mid-December, I would say up to about half ounce is probably our best sellers. And then from half ounce to one ounce definitely takes over from, you know, middle end of December all the way through about end of March, beginning of April. And then it'll quickly shift back to the lighter sizes as people start targeting the sheep's head with, you know, a mixed bag of other species of fish. Um, you'll get a lot of, we've, we've had a lot of anglers who start adapting to, um, you know, if they're using live shrimp for the um, sheep's head, especially we get this over in Mobile Bay a lot, where they're using our knocker jigs with the shrimp and they're using them right alongside for catching, uh, you know, speckled trout, flounder, you know, or if the swing jig, you're putting a pulmino on it for flounder, the black snapper. Um, and those same anglers have also started, you know, we were able to track our, a lot of our retail sales online and we see who our repeat customers are. And you see a lot of the guys over time, you know, they started off using these specifically for sheep's head, but now they're buying them year round for other species as well. And that's, that's been phenomenal for us. Yeah, I can imagine my growth right there. I mean, that piece, knowing that what you're making, though it started as one create, you know, has become five or six, that's a super win. And that's just, you know, and that even with that, it's synonymous with the quality. They know it's like, dude, these work and I trust this company. That those two pieces put together is, it, it makes it a no brainer right there. Um, before you continue, we, 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 we <laughs> before we continue though, we got to do one quick bait check. So just one second here. Let's get that one in here. One thing I love, you guys know it. It's the bait check time. It's for that one opportunity for you to bring your line in and check it. Cause you got to do it, man. You, you just, what are you going to do? You're just going to let it sit out there. You, you just can't win when you're fishing on luck and hope just doesn't work. This bait check is being brought to you by DS Custom Tackle. Delaware Surf Fishing, love those guys up there. They've got a whole bunch of great things on the website. If you need teasers, floats, gear, rigs, stuff like that, they got it covered. If you need something specific, you can reach out to them as well and talk to them about it. They've got a whole bunch of new things. And of course, I'm always, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Barry with BS Surf Fishing. Yep, Barry's rig with the sand flea. Yeah, it's still good. Still doing fun things. Lots more stuff coming out on the website. So that's dscustomtackle.com. Go on up, take a look, and check it out. So with the years that grow, like we were talking about, was synonymous with quality. You've created that. You and your team. Let me sorry. Let me, yeah, let me put that. You and the team have built this monster into this great thing. And now, like you said, it was like, well, this was what it was for. But now you guys are using it for this. All right. Hey, I can adapt to that. That's huge, man. It it really is. And like you said, it. I'd like to get this through to everybody. Like, it is a team. Uh, good Lord has blessed me with, you know, some of the best, you know, employees and workers that I could ask for. Um, 
you know, they're, they're really great about making sure that like our quality is maintained all the way through. And, you know, they, they contribute a lot to the design and the hooks that we're using, the components that we're using. And kind of our philosophy is like, if we would not spend our hard earned money on this to fish with, we do not want it going out the door. Um, and yes, it's really easy where like, you, know, you may make a mistake on something and have a bad batch of something or you import something in and it comes out wrong and you're like, oh, well, you know, let me just, you know, I'll pass this off to this customer at a discounted price and, you know, we'll just be done with it. But unfortunately, you know, your reputation is everything. And so if you cut corners like that, you know, it eventually shows. And so it's just, you know, maintaining, you know, a real high level of quality all the way through and, you know, having, having a dedicated team that you communicate with very well to make sure that, you know, the products stay true all the way through the process. You know, I, I, I absolutely would not be where I'm at today if it wasn't for my dad, my brother. Um, you know, we've got another employee, Natalie Cox, and then another business partner, Zach Pennington. They've, you know, just done a tremendous job helping us out and get to where we're at. Um, I was glad you did that bait check just then, by the way. I brought something. We've got a new product we're going to be launching this spring. Uh, it's going to be sheep's head jigs. We've had a lot of customers um, who've been using them for catching whiting on the beach. They've asked for specifically for a smaller hook. Where they can just tip with like fish bites, fish gum, a little bit of shrimp. And we've been testing this on and off for going on about three or four years now. You know, we know it works and it's just, we're finally at a point in time where it's like, okay, it's time to pull the trigger on this and make it happen. And so we'll have <laughs> specifically like a whiting jig coming out, a whiting series coming out this spring. And, I'm I'm very excited about that. So y'all were first people to hear the announcement on it, and you know, glad you bring it in mind. Dude, that's so. great because we all know. I mean, whiting is a fun one to play with, and it I, is. I I have definitely learned a couple of really valuable lessons this year specifically on whiting that last uh, last couple of years I've overlooked, and one of them being a smaller hook, uh, yeah. a certain style hook, and uh, a certain way it's done. So uh, I know after the show, we'll talk more and I'm looking forward to that, dude. That's dude. That's so great that you're doing it though. Because hey, it, I'll send you a sample that, man. Oh, done. You yeah. know that I'll, I'll make some weird stuff happen with that. I'm all for it. I can, I can see some stuff between me and Justin Reed fishing, having some, uh, some interesting conversations and competitions with that one. Nice. Um, this actually, what you brought that up with that piece. This actually translates pretty well into the next question for you. How do you decide on what to make and why? Ooh, I was looking through the list of everything you've asked me here, and that's the, it's probably the toughest one. I, it, it's very easy in this industry to expand too quickly. And so I would say the first deciding factor on any product is can we fit it into our manufacturing process in a way that doesn't interfere with the existing products? and timetable of getting products to customers. That's probably our, our biggest problem is as a business is balancing a combination of having both a wholesale market, a small, you know, retail presence, online retail presence, and getting products to customers in a reasonable time period. 
so like online retail, um, we really, this year, our team has done fantastic. We've really kept it at three to five business days. And so, you know, if there's any products that are going to take us longer than that to manufacture, it is unfortunate and happening right now. Um, for the wholesale side of things, I really try to make sure that we get most of our orders uh, delivered within about a two week time span, three weeks maximum. Um, you know, there's some of our stores that put in really large orders at a time. And so we'll just divide those up um, into like a multi-part delivery. So they never run out of any one particular product. Um, and so that's how we kind of navigate those orders. The second aspect to releasing a new product or design would be testing, testing, and more testing. Um, and that, I hate saying that's probably the next hardest aspect of it because a lot of your good fishermen are still very quiet and secretive about what works. And so they still keep, you know, a lot of things under wraps and it's, you may come up with a great product. You get into the hands of a lot of other anglers to, you know, see how it works. Um, you know, usually the first time it's like writing the first time you make something, most likely it's going to be garbage. It's like a rough draft, you know, be prepared, you know, to realize that like all the time and energy you sink into making that batch of jigs is probably going to be thrown out the door, you know, pretty quickly. Um, once you get the testing going, it usually takes a good bit of time in the fishing world to get proper feedback. And what I mean by that is. I'll give you a great example. We make these tubes that we've been selling out with pompano jigs. And um, the tubes, we partnered with a company in Arkansas. To, um, they make crappie tubes in bulk. And we partnered with them to make a, um, a specific tube for us that uses saltwater grade blastosalt. So it lasts a lot longer than you know, one or two fish hitting it. And the idea being that you can change out these tubes on your jig relatively quickly, especially for pier fishermen. Guys sight fishing, one of the problems, then you, know, you get on a pier and everybody's throwing a pink jig and one guy with an orange jig starts catching all the pompano. Or, you know, a chartreuse jig, for whatever reason that day is catching more. So this would allow the angler without having to retie to just, you know, change up the tube. Um, and then you also don't have the issues of like a hand-tied jig of, you know, if a you know, Spanish mackerel, bluefish, or something else with teeth comes up and grabs it, you know, you can just yank that tube off real quick and throw on the next one. Um, it's taken us a long time to get point those get tested well. And you get several good anglers who use them and you find, you come to find out later, it's like they were using them by accident or it's like, Oh, it's, you know, it's a muddy water day. Surf was high. You know, it was a last ditch effort of let me just throw this on and see if it'll work. And, you know, by golly, I ended up catching a nice pompano on it. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, the nature of fishing is people have limited time. So usually when they go fishing, they're not trying to test out some new item. Um, they're using whatever, you know, tried and true methods are to, um, you know, be as productive as possible in what limited time they have. And so that's, you know, that's just the nature of a beast. You just got to be, you got to find a good customer base of reliable fishermen you know, pass the products out to them 
um, you know, spend the money to just, you know, make a large batch of products, get it out to them, and then just be prepared to wait. Um, I would say at this point in the game, most of the time, if we release something new, it's almost guaranteed that we actually made it probably three or four years back uh, by the time we get to the point where we're willing to release it. And usually from the point where we release it, we usually do like kind of like a soft online retail release or even sometimes with social media to begin with. We'll do like something that's only Instagram or only Facebook. You know, sell a few batches of it, see what happens. Um, you know, just slowly increment the sales to the point where you're getting them in stores. Um, and that also helps us going back to the original problem of balancing our time with manufacturing with, you know, a limited shop space, limited time, limited capital, and, um, you know, making sure all of our, our, all of our existing customers stay happy with what we're doing. So I think, uh, any, any other aspects to that you want to know about? <laughs> I'm like getting the easy way. It's like, a, it's like I'm getting the playbook here, man. Uh, and I'm looking over here at the questions at the same time and I'm laughing. I'm like, he nailed that one. He nailed that one. He nailed that one. It's like you're just crushing through these and it's so perfect. Um, I, I, I'm just loving this. <laughs> and the conversation's flowing so smoothly because it's just you. I mean, you've always, anytime I've talked with you, it's always been a pleasure to have a conversation because you are engaging and you're always, you're very open and you can tell when you're talking about things, you really care about the customer and the people and the whole process. It's not, you know, it's not a, Oh, cool. I'm getting your money. You, you can tell it's all throughout for lack of better terms. And I can say this word twice in one show and not have to market explicit, but you give a shit and that's huge. Um, and so seriously, I mean, it's just phenomenal and wonderful. All of those pieces. Um, well, I really appreciate hearing that. I mean, it's, it goes a long way because a lot of times these days I'm working more, you know, kind of in the background and, you know, the goal is in the you know upcoming years is I'm able to train more people on, able to get back out in front of some things. But, you know, until then being able to hear feedback from you and from other customers, it's always, it's always great. I mean, that's what keeps a lot of us interesting and it is the designing of new products and really the, um, the constant process of improving what you're making. I mean, we we recently had a big uh, change with our sheepshead jigs, with swing jigs, where we've gone on our live bait hooks to where they're all now made in America by Eagle Claw and instead of us using imported hooks. And we're trying to get away from our own company's dependence on Chinese-made products. And that has been like that's been at least three, four years, about four years now in the making. It was 2019 uh, when we started working on that. And, you know, it's, it's been, you know, passing the ball back and forth to make sure everything's lined up correctly. And we're really excited about that. Um, in terms of, I know there's a lot of other, you know, manufacturers that listen to your show and follow you and your podcast. And so one of the things I would say about openness is that I wouldn't be where I'm at today if there wasn't a lot of our business owners who took the time to teach me skills and, you know, really take me under their wing and, you know, share business, you know, you want to call it like secrets, information, knowledge, 
um, any of those aspects, you know, I would not be where I'm at today without that. And so I really try to make sure that our shop is open to other manufacturers for that. Uh, obviously, there's a few things that we keep under wraps, but for the most part, a lot of what we do is completely available online. Um, and I would say easily 90 to 95% of it, just watching a bunch of YouTube videos and piecemealing it together, you can do what we do, you know, at your own house in your garage. And we're here to help with that. We got a lot of guys who they want to tie their own jigs. They want to make their own rigs. They want to you know, pour their own weights. You know, hit us up if you got questions. That's, that's what we're here for. We're, I would like to see as much tackle made in the U.S. as possible. That would be nice. I mean, that's a, a, a tough challenge, but that would be extremely nice. Um, before we move into the next question, we'll knock out one more bait check here because now we're going to get into the creative process. And this is, I know that this one's going to dig deep because the, the creativity with this, I know you've got some stuff in there. That's right. It's that time again, ladies and gentlemen. You got to check that bait. Make sure it's good. Hopefully, you've caught a bunch of fish. That's the goal. If you haven't caught fish by now, man, switch the bait up. Switch it from top to bottom. Or maybe you got to throw a different rig out there. Different jig. Something's got to change. Or, hey, we've said it before in other shows, and I know it sucks. Pack it up and move, man. Go down 20 yards, 30 yards, 40 yards. Change it up. I want you to catch fish. Just like everyone. That'd be important. This bait check is being brought to you by, yeah, that's right. The kids can fish. Love the Kids Can Fish Foundation. You guys have heard me talk about it every week, and I do mean it when I say I love them. They're doing so many great things with these kids. All the money that you send into them and the donations, it goes back into these camps. Helps get these kids out there to learn how to fish, throw cast nets, whether it's freshwater, saltwater, all those pieces. They care, and they bring them out there. After these kids learn this stuff, they take the gear home. That is all because of you. And with the big tournament, as you guys know, I would love that we'll run into the Bulls tournament out there in St. Simons Island. All that money gets right back in. Huge, great things. If you can go over there, kidscanfish.net's the website. Take a look at all the stuff on there, and you can see they are a 503C. I think that's the way I'm supposed to say it. I can never remember. But they are a real charity. All the numbers are stuff there. And if you got questions, reach out to them. They're very responsive. And like they always say, it's their unofficial slogan, more tackle boxes, less Xboxes. Get the kids out there. Let them fish. You know what's the worst? They've all got the addiction now. Those poor kids stuck on the things that we love. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Though. I mean, any any program out, that's out there that gets kids in the outdoors more, that's the next generation. And I can say this as a parent, taking the kids fishing, it is rough. <laughs> There's no other way around it. I'm sorry. I mean, like I've got my daughter's 10, my son, you know, he's just turned three and it's like, you know, my daughter, she knows how to fish a good bit with live bait, but like trying to get her to use an artificial is like pulling teeth. And then my son, you know, he just wants to go and grab whatever rod daddy's using at the time. And you know, that's, that's his rod then. <laughs> and so, you know, to all the moms and dads out there who are willing to take time out of their, you know, weekend and, you know, getting their kids out there and not just pass them off to a babysitter, you know, all the more power to y'all. It's, it takes a lot of patience and as a skill set all to itself of getting kids involved. And I feel like as a society, we definitely need to do a better job of addressing that because whether it's fishing or hunting, 
or anything else outdoors related, it's on us to, you know, foster that love at a young age so that they get involved. You know, I, w- I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my dad taking time to teach us how to fish. Yeah. I mean, you opened with that specifically. So I can relate. I now have a 13 year old daughter and I've learned we, we bring peanut butter and jelly couple of other snacks i gotta stop at whataburger because if i don't get her her chicken tendies you know it's not gonna be okay and she has the ipad for the downtimes but as soon as that rod goes off man she is i'm not exactly a small guy but she quick (laughs) (laughs) that's not my fish that's her fish now Now, dad, this is mine. Yep, pretty. And, and I'm okay with it. I'm like, yeah, have at it. I don't have to run. Uh, so let's talk into the creative processing here. Um, you have a lot of products, and obviously, it started with one, and it's grown and grown and grown. And you've talked about how feedback from customers has also helped shape this movement down as you've seen things and your your continued growth. Can you describe the creative process when conceptualizing and developing new products? Hmm. So much of our um, of our business model goes back to that idea of you know is this something that is it something that we can sell to the stores ultimately, uh, or is it something that we can sell to a mass audience? And so from a creative process, I think there's two sides. There's the business side, and there's the like fun like. Let's just go out and just make something in the shop side. It's easy to go out there and just go like, hey, let me add this hook to this mold and let me mix these powder paints together. You know, let me modify this mold this way. And you can you can go hog wild with that. Um, and honestly, I try to take at least, you know, four or five days out of the year where I just, you know, I mark off on the calendar like, hey, this is a day where I'm just going to experiment. And I'll pick something that's been, you know, on my mind for a while. And I'll just, I'll sit down for several hours and I just hammer away at that one area. Um, you know, whether it's uh, trying to run some sort of experiment on we're doing one here coming up on the cure times for uh, different powder paints. I've been wanting to do that for a long time. That may sound boring as can be to most people, but to a nerd like me, that's, you know, it's that, that background knowledge that you know, allows you to make new products. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go into Outcast or Gulf Breeze Bait and Tackle or Emerald Ghost, and I'll sit in there and I'll buy, you know, 50 to $100 of different little packages of hooks that I haven't seen before, you know, just to be able to bring back and play around. Like, hey, could we make something better doing this way? Could we, you know, would this work for a certain situation? And I think... That, that situational part is the next big aspect to the creative process between what separates something that you sell from a business standpoint to, you know, just making something that you're going to use yourself. Could I make a specific jig head for a specific condition for, let's say, targeting flounder? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um but how many of our anglers are going to use that jig head or that soft plastic fishing that specific condition? So you, you're always trying to find, find items that aren't just going to work for what your own personal style of fishing is, but that can be used for a wide range of different situations, different species, 
you know, that's probably like one of the best examples of that is one of our flagship products, our circle of jigs. Um, that's a product that we use both inshore and offshore. For inshore, you know, redfish, uh, striped bass, uh, black drum, you know, all those guys use them for that. And then, you know, you take them offshore and people are using them for snapper, you know, with reds, mangroves, um, triggerfish, amberjack. You know, it's just a wide range of species there. Uh, hexhead jigs, it's another, you know, that's another like very wide range. Uh, there's probably been more species of fish that we've been caught on our, ta- of our tackle on that one jig than anything else that we make. It's, um, you know, you can dart them up and down for Spanish, you know, reel them across the surface for Bonita, uh, pitch them in front of Mahi, but then you can take that same jig, you know, tip it with a bait and bounce it up and down around a pier piling or some offshore structure, inshore structure for flounder. Um, we a lot of guides who use them here in the fall time for, you know, a bull red run. And, you know, I've got, you know, some of the lighter versions, like the half ounce versions that guys on the East Coast have been using for speckled trout. And so it, it's not the creative process. So you really, if you can imagine it with fishing tackle, there's most likely a way you can get a mold made or, you know, ultimately make what you want. But the big limit then on taking that product to market is how big of an audience is going to be willing to use it and test it out and then, you know, ultimately spend their hard-earned time and money both buying it and using it to, you know, catch fish. You can you can sell anything, I think, one time to a customer, but you have one shot. And if that customer goes out and uses your product and it fails on them or they, or they have no faith in it, they won't buy it again. And it only takes a few times of that before they won't buy any of your products. And so you've really got to make sure that when, you, when you're creating tackle, that you capture that, I guess you want to call it the essence or that moment of when they pull it out of a package and they go to tie it on their line, that they have ultimate faith and confidence that, you know, regardless of what the fishing conditions are, that they have a chance of catching a fish on it. And then when that strike occurs, I think that's even more important than actually catching a fish, but just getting a hit. You know, when you, when you, when you tie on some new tackle or lure and you at least get hits on it, you've got faith in it immediately. But if you get out there and you start throwing something for 30 minutes to an hour to you know, half a day, you ain't got any hits on it. And you're in, you, especially if the conditions are where you believe that they're good, you, know, you got tide movement, you're seeing bait getting blown up on and you're not getting any hits. Yeah. That's going straight in the trash or the back of the, the toolbox or tackle bag to never be seen again. You know, so it's just it's a big aspect of it. Um, oh, go ahead. No, I mean, I think that, like, in terms of the overall creative process, I think that's probably the, you know, the biggest aspect of getting something to market. Um, and I can go into all the details that you want about whether it's pouring jigs or painting or, you know, is there any specific aspect of that you'd like me to focus on? Or? No, because then we're starting into the fun trade secrets. Well, <laughs> on the same one, too. I mean, it's you bring up another great point, too. And this really, if any of you are out there thinking about getting in this game, is something to think about on the business aspect. You can have a thousand SKUs. That sounds great. But if you have 1,000 SKUs that, you know, 900 of them suck and you'll, you know, the last one's the best one, 
then that last hundred is that skew you need to pay attention to. So yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying on that. It's it's a smart business model. Make what works and figure it out and continue on. And the creative process right there, like you said, you know, you're going into a place and you're you know you're experimenting. But at the end of the day, yeah, it looks cool and it's kind of fun. But is it really going to be useful? And is it going to get you know? Is it going to continue the bird of prey name as a quality product, or is this just going to be, you know, yeah, I built this in my garage? Yeah, <laughs> it just doesn't work. So, no, it makes yeah. sense. Um, that also with that creative process, because that brings us full circle here. And I've heard this argument from other people, and I I don't have a dog in this fight because I just go, oh, okay, cool, uh, very well it comes down to the appearance of the natural bait. And when people look at, I'll be the first one to say it. When I first saw a sweeper jig, I was like, what the hell is this? The bait's going to look all funky on there. It's not going to look natural. And then, you know, you start seeing the knocker jigs and then you start seeing the free flowing hook on the football and you're like, what the hell? But then you realize, holy crap, it works. Who would have thought this works? Uh, can you can you discuss with us the mechanics of how the your lures assist in the appearance of a natural bait? So I think it's I think it, it boils down to especially with sheep set jigs. You're basically presenting a fiddler crab or a shrimp. That's usually the, the two go-to baits that most people are using. Every now and then you'll see somebody's got a ghost shrimp pump and they're, you know, pumping up ghost shrimp or, you know, you got guys who are using um, one of my favorite baits. It's like a, a different um, like a semi-dried oysters. Um, or whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't <laughs> <laughs> hey, we've got a barnacle blue and we've got an oyster color. I mean, there, there's reasons that they sell. It's, it's for people that haven't used it i mean i i am one somebody said it to me and i was like oh, okay i'll talk about it and i talked about it and somebody came up and was like shut up don't talk about that i'm like dude <laughs> come on if somebody doesn't know this one already they're gonna figure it out yeah, it's mean, a phenomenal think, bait for free and sheeps and there's so many youtube videos on people prepping oysters these days whether it's in the netting the spawn netting or you know, or drying them out. Like, it, that cat's out of the bag. I'm sorry. And it should be because it's all knowledge. But I mean, yeah. oh, I, I, I'm not going to digress. Not yet. I'll digress on a later one. Keep going. Uh, the biggest, I mean, I'll tell you this right now in terms of like new products, whether it's fish bites, fish gum, um, gulp, any of these other scented bait companies, the first one of them that makes an artificial that can effectively target sheep's head it'll make a billion dollars right there. Oh, I mean, it's wow. uh, like, just like what, what's happened with them with Pompano fishing. I mean, it, the first one of those companies that can consistently allow an angler to use a jig or a Carolina rig to target sheep's head, uh, that's, that's a no brainer. Uh, it's one of the biggest untouched markets right now in inshore fishing. Um, in terms of like bait presentation of the jigs themselves, I'll say this, a lot of people, one of the biggest things I've got to make a YouTube video on, and I'm probably gonna work with Jack on this, uh, Yak and Jack. It's a lot of people when they think of jigs, they think of like casting a jig out. Like let's say if you're bouncing a jig with a soft plastic for like redfish or trout. Sheep said jigs don't work like that. Um, it's uh, you wanna be as close to near vertical fishing as possible. And so I think the presentation there is that you've got a, crab 
or, a sh- or some shrimp, crustacean, something else that is up off the bottom slightly in a natural position where it looks like it's trying to escape or it's broken off of something. And, you know, sheep's head can clearly smell it because you know, a lot of times in this really muddy water, you'll still get hits from them. And I think it just is an ease of them being able to reach over and grab it. Um, and I've definitely seen it where, especially on like some of the piers where it's, it's almost seems like a reaction bite where people are dropping the jigs down and the sheep's head just turns a corner and just, and just grabs it immediately. Um, I tell people this all the time. There are definitely plenty of times where the sheep's head jigs are ineffective. Um, if you are in a boat and you're fishing around like jetties or rocks or even a bridge and it's um, somewhat rough conditions from the wind or let's say you're, you don't have a controlling motor or you're having to anchor away from something like that and you're having to throw up towards that piling or that structure, you need to use a Carolina. It'll outfish those jigs any day of the week. I, I would argue if you have to throw more than about really like 10 or 15 yards casting distance, you should probably stick with Carolina. Um, that's where like the kayak guys and guys fishing from land have a huge advantage with the jigs is because most of the time they're able to get to a position where they can fish up and down. A lot of the guys with boats that are fishing with our jigs are actually taking their boat to get to a piling and then they're like, you know, they're standing up on the piling, getting up on it. Or we're using like a um, like a set of tires or pool noodles. Um, a lot of guys over in uh, Mississippi and uh, Louisiana will do that to like block their boat from hitting up against the edge of structure, and they're just dropping straight down. And so, you know, that's the, the one of the biggest factors with those jigs in terms of presentation is that it's something about that vertical presentation that makes those jigs effective. And um, you know. I, I honestly, I could not tell you exactly what that sheep's head's thinking when he sees that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is to this day, you know, even as the maker, you know, we, we sell, you know, on average, I think last year we sold just shy of 32,000 of these jigs. I mean, it's insane. And to me, I don't know what it is about sheep's head where on one hand they seem so smart that it's so difficult to try to get them to hit an artificial, but for whatever reason, that presentation where the bait is slightly up off the bottom makes all the difference in the world. And, um, you know, I've had a few customers even say like, if they use a Carolina rig, you know, like over in Louisiana, a lot of times they'll use a Carolina rig and they're using a float. Um, And I think, again, it's the same principle of, most of these bait species that the sheep that are targeting are generally, you know, very buried up in grass or very, you know, little crabs or something that are in a hard reach spot for them. Um, or, you know, it's an oyster, it's, you know, got an armored shell around it. Right. And so when you present that bait to them, right, like it's just an easy grab. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons those jigs are so effective. Um, you know, above and beyond that, when you start getting into like, what the, what, the, what the real physics are, you know, I can, I can put you in the direction of a few guys who catch lots and lots of sheep's head, and they could probably answer the question better than I can as a manufacturer of it. Well, the part of it is, is people have asked that question, like, what is it about those? And you just, you answered it, it's like, it's something about it, it works. And it's not a gimmick, 
we've seen it. I mean, Jack's videos have proved it. Sean, all these other ones, the, yeah. the videos show that it works. So you, and with the coloring, I think on those pieces, cause you brought that up, why the color is so important. Cause it gives you that one, you know, Hey, that's maybe that flash piece that they didn't see the crab. They saw something and came over mm-hmm. and yeah, they're pretty damn smart and their mouths are frigging rock hard. And thankfully your hooks go right in and do the, the job. There's just something about it. And, and I love that you didn't BS it. You're just like, dude, I don't know how it does, but I know it works. And, it, and we've seen it. It's proofs in the pudding. So that's one of the, I think I'll it's great that that's one of the straight answer. One of the aspects of a, of a tackle manufacturer is there's a lot of products that we'll, we'll test out. We know that they work. You know, most of them we try to make sure we're using them at least a handful of times before we go to the market. Somebody in-house is using them. And a lot of times you'll get customers who ask, why does this particular tactic or, you know, why does this particular product work the way that it does? And just honestly, there's not always a good answer for it. You know, why, you know, there's a lot of products that we make. And I would say this about science in general, right? Like a lot of our knowledge about science today is built on things that were discovered before us. And so like a lot of the products that we make, like for instance, like a pyramid weight, we sell tons of pyramid weights to surf fishermen. And yeah, you can look at the shape and say, okay, it doesn't roll around as well, but you know, why is it that, you know, that one particular shape has taken off so well in the United States, but you look at like, you know, surf fishing in other countries and the molds that they make over there and some of them will be like an arrowhead shape and some of them will be like a dice shape. You know, it's like, you know, and like we've had the, the Sputnik sinkers been, you know, they've been huge along the Gulf Coast here the last few years. Um, you know, sinker guy, he makes a lot of them. I think Frisky's is making some now. And, um, you know, like obviously they grab and hold up, but you look at some of these different shapes for products and, you know, the tactics of, to, you know, why they work. And there's a whole range of, you know, combinations there as to why that item may have come out looking that way um it could be from a combination of okay it works in nature like these sheep's head jigs or it could be like oh that was the best manufacturing design that the guy making the mold could come up with at the time right and so you're just you're you know the person making the tackle is limited by the machinist at that point in time and what you know he's able to come up with um you know so there's different factors like that um i would say probably one of the biggest limiting factors in jig production is um is the limitation of actual like good quality jig hooks um you know all these companies where it's mustad eagle claw owner bkk one of the biggest factors that limits you know like our company and other companies is you know what we're, we're at the mercy of what kinds of jig hooks they produce um like i would love a long shank heavy duty jig hook that we could put in jigs for Spanish mackerel. It just, it doesn't exist. Nobody's making them. So, you know, anybody from Mustad listening to this, here you go, get on it. <laughs> yeah, you guys just got a freebie right there for product design. Like, oh, hey, you know what? That's a brilliant, why didn't we think of that? Well, you did now. So congratulations. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, like uh, circle hooks, you know, that's been one thing with like our circle hook jigs and our Cyclops jigs. There's no long, like there's no easily accessible, good quality, long shank circle hooks. Um, that limits what we can put in a jig. Um, the, 
the gap between the tip of a hook and the shank of a hook. When you start casting lead around it, that really affects the um, the bite of a fish and what's you know what they're able to handle. You know, if you if you're targeting something like a bass, right, you can get away with anything from like a really small hook to a really large hook, and then you know it really boils down to like customer preference, right? Do they want a hook that you know they're they're guaranteed to you know get the hook set on them? Or do they want like a really small hook that it's more to like, you know, match the hatch, it's more finesse fishing style. Um, but then you start locking, you know, you look at the other side of a spectrum, let's say like a whiting or a pompano, right? Something that's got a lot smaller of a mouth. You get really limited by what kinds of hook options you have then to be able to put into, you know, into a jig. And especially like if you're wanting to keep the overall design practical you need to be able to use parts and molds that are already available uh, mold making has gone through the absolute roof since covid i mean like pre-covid to get a good quality mold made you're probably talking like five six hundred dollars and now i mean to get something done in a timely manner manner you're probably talking upwards of like you know anywhere from like 1100 to you know $1,500 even for a production mold. And so you can't, you know, unless you're sitting on, you know, another job that's bringing in a ton of money, you know, or some silent partner of a ton of extra capital, you just can't go out in the shop and start making things, you know, using up that kind of level of capital to, you know, just make anything that sounds like it's going to work great. So, you know, that's some of the limiting factors there you know, product design as well as, you know, what, what we're limited in our capacity to do. That makes sense. That's limitations. Not fair. They're not fair. Uh, all right. Well, actually let's knock out the last bait check here. And when we're only down to about three more questions in here and we'll get you down to the final ones and get you out for the night. So you're all crushing right. this man. You're just crushing it. <laughs> It is your final bait check of the episode. And like I always say, I hope you caught a bunch. That's what I really want. I want you to catch a bunch of fish. That's why we're talking here. This bait check is being brought to you by the sinker guy. We just talked about him. You need Sputniks? Chip's got him. That's in his name. If you need any kind of rigs, jigs, tools, hey, yeah, he's got them in there too. Got plenty of terminal tackle. I use the scissors. I destroy them all the time with crab and they keep coming back for more. And then if I need to cut a line, yeah, I got it right there. Good stuff at the sinkerguy.com. Lots of good stuff in the sinker guy garage. Chip's got you covered. Go on over, take a look. You won't be sorry. So moving into this last pieces here. Okay. So you brought it up a little bit and we will, uh, we'll crush into that one. And then we'll get into this last one. How do you stay connected with the fishing community to gather feedback and insight uh, that help inform your design and decision-making process for going forward? Um, so the biggest part of our, our um, direct reach with our clients and customers is definitely through our charter boats. Um, I'd say our charter boats. It's you know, all the charter boats we supply. Um, I would say realistically, probably around 450 to 500 charter boats that we deal with and that's everything from like inshore six-pack boats to you know offshore head boats and so those captains are really reliable 
source of intelligence in terms of, you know, what's going to work, what's not going to work. Um, the limiting factor there is a lot of the products that we would sell um, direct retail, especially for inshore fishing. You know, those captains aren't going to use it. I mean, most most captains when they're fishing, you know, six pack inshore are going to go to tried and true way of, you know, they're going to get shrimp, going um, you're like bait mullet, bull minnows, whatever, you know, using a Carolina rig, you know, you don't, you don't use a whole lot of jigs, um, and other artificials on a charter boat. So when it comes to that area, luckily that's where me, my brother, you know, a lot of our close friends do a lot of that kind of fishing. And so for the inshore stuff, that's pretty hands-on. Um, we got a lot of friends who do a lot of surf fishing. Um, I'm, I'm really happy. I'm finally getting ready to start getting back into surf fishing after a you know, hiatus of kids. So I'm, yeah, we're, me and my wife have, you know, spent some money on some tackle and getting ready to, um, start getting them involved with that more now that they're both able to swim and, you know, I have to worry about them drowning or, you know, running off way down the beach. Yeah, that is a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's a big one. Um, with the offshore stuff, with it, you know, we like I said, we rely on the captains a lot because a lot of the offshore gear we still sell is really catered. You know, there, there hasn't been as many gains in the offshore world. I mean, like obviously, like the slow pitch jigs are probably, um, you know, flat fall jigs have probably been the biggest um, change in the offshore game in the last few years. And that's only been to our advantage because as people downsize their tackle, they're the same rods that they're using these slow pitch jigs on. They're using our circle jigs and our cyclops jigs. So that's worked out really well for us. Um, and so usually the offshore guys, kind of our approach to that method is if I or my brother can go out and test some stuff, that's awesome. If not, we've got a pretty large range of people who are willing to test stuff out. With the inshore stuff, a lot of that we'll test on ourselves first, and then we'll pass that along to friends who we think would, you know, fish in similar methods and ways, get their feedback about it. And then we make whatever tweaks or adjustments we need to make. Um, you know, and that, and that process can take a little bit of time. Like if we, if you don't factor in, if you take out what we talked about earlier with the, like, how do you get it to market? If you just factor in the tweaking back and forth of, let's say, like a, a jig head, um, you can go through a few iterations before you get it just the way, you know, you want it. Whether that is, um, you know, pouring in a certain way, whether you like the barb that, that, like, comes on the jig head or if you feel like it needs to be modified so your soft plastic sits on it better. Or let's say, let's do another example, like a, like a rig. Um, we're doing a lot of stuff with like deep drop rigs and offshore rigs right now. And then we've got this coming spring, um, we've got a huge thing of different types of pompano rigs, um, and, you know, beach fishing rigs coming out. And so a lot of those are being tested right now. Um, and on those aspects of it, it's finding out, okay, are we catching fish first? And if once you're starting to catch fish on it, you start then going through the physics of can we manufacture this both quickly so that we can get it to customers in the time frames that we discussed earlier, or 
is this going to interfere with an existing product? Okay. And then from there, it's like, okay, if it interferes with an existing product, which product is more profitable? If the product you're already making is more profitable, well, then not too bad, so sad, that new product's not coming to market. If, you know, the new product has a higher profit margin, then, all right, that's the way, that's the route we're going. Someone's getting axed or we're cutting back on something. Um, you know, and so that's, that's a big aspect of it. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely a boneyard, you know, spread out throughout the back of our shop of, you know, different experiments, different products that we've tested, different things we've developed that, you know, for some reason along that, that design process, they just, you know, they didn't quite make it or didn't, you know, didn't prove profitable. So, oh, you know, you're going into a bucket to look at later. And um, that, that stuff's really valuable, though, because we're, we're all very forgetful. And so there's, there's a whole slew of products that if it was the right time and place, yeah, I would love to make. And, you know, they're, they're sitting on the shelf collecting dust right now. But, you know, as the operation grows, we hire on more employees. You know, it's always something that you can come back to and revisit. Or it's something where you can go, hey, I've got an experiment for something. Um, you know, you come up with an idea and you're able to go back and go, well, you know, how did I do this before? Or, you know, why didn't I do this before? And so it's always good to kind of revisit that stuff from a, you know, from a design standpoint. Um, I, I would honestly say it's probably one of the most cliche things you hear, but it's so true. And that is, you can't be afraid of failure. Um, that honestly like whether it's any aspect of business any aspect of life or it's just you know making tackle in your garage you know there is no right or wrong way to do it um the biggest thing is just do it try it out you know learn from trying it out and then repeat and keep doing it again and again and again until you get something that you know works for whatever your needs are and that's uh, I, I couldn't hammer that into people hard enough. If I go back and, you know, slap that in myself at a younger age, I definitely would. Uh, yeah, so I think I think for any of the bait makers out there, you know, that, that would be one of the biggest things I would tell them. Or if you're just a hobbyist, right? Like if you're, if you're just worried about, you know, making your own rigs or, um, you know, making some tackle in your garage, and you're worried that, you know, hey, it's not going to look as pretty as what I see in the store. Well, you know what? Those people in the store had to start somewhere too. And you know what? It's, I would say, the creative process and making tackle, like even not from like a business perspective, just like for our own personal pers- perspective, it's, it's therapeutic. It's fun. It's it, on a rainy day or in the dead of winter when you're not able to target, you know, whatever your favorite species is, it's a way you can get out in the garage and you're involved with fishing and you're able to go, Hey, you know what? I made this. And then when you take it out on the water and you catch a fish with it, that aspect of going like, Hey, he ate something that, you know, I made that's very rewarding. And I, I would hope every angler out there gets to experience that that feeling at least once in their fishing career. Um, it's, it's something that it's definitely, it's one of those things that'll make, you know, you have always memories that when you go fishing, like, Oh, I went with so-and-so that day and we had an awesome day fishing. Well, 
the first time you make tackle yourself and you go out there and you catch something on it, that is one of those little you know, core memories that will get ingrained in your head. Or, oh, I, I caught that on my tackle. So that's, that's always awesome. See, I love that you did this though. I love that you brought up the business aspect with this because it, you didn't pull any punches with it. You really just gave it out there of that whole one, you know, yeah, is this going to work? It might, but on the at the end of the day, too, great ideas are one thing, but putting food on the table, yeah, the, it, sometimes ideas don't give you food for the table for that month. So you got to kind of work with, with what you have there. Um, but I do love your boneyard part, part too, because how many times have things popped up that were just ahead of its time, you know, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, like you just mentioned, you know, the slow pitch jigs out of nowhere that started coming to life and here we go and, and you've got a you've got a piece of that pie that's right there and that's ready to play and it's just it's great that you can bring up both together and you see that picture and you really helped other people that are talking about it on the you know the aspiring makers or in the garage screwing around having a fun give it things a try and you hammering that i think is i don't want to say uh, testimonial but it's refreshing in that aspect because you really do you're making the point that well of try and it's okay and you just keep going keep going keep going don't quit so with you doing all that that's that's just it's just freaking awesome now i'm babbling son of a bitch but all right here let me do this then because you just nailed the last five questions in what you just said there so that made it perfect you're actually into the closing section here you're about done so let's get you into this one all right yeah you've done the interview yourself i've basically just been sitting here on mute like this is great i'm loving this this is so easy (laughs) everybody should make a podcast you guys are welcome here you go here's the keys All right. Uh, what knowledge would you give to a brand new angler starting out? Ooh, this goes right, right to what I was just saying about the don't be afraid to fail. Um, I think I think we're living in a weird time where it's real. It, it's never been easier for a new angler to go online and to see how to go and target a certain species of fish. But at the same time, it's never been as easy for them to take a lot of criticism and feel a lot of stress and pressure, you know, to go fishing. Um, I've seen a lot of, luckily we live here on the Gulf Coast, so we get a lot of tourists. And we deal with a lot of anglers who are either new or have limited experience doing some sort of freshwater fishing up north or out the Midwest. And so they come here to the Gulf Coast and you know, we get asked all the time, like, you know, what kind of gear do I need to have? What kind of tackle do I need to have? And, you know, you can usually find that out, that information out pretty quickly. And I, I always make the argument, like, for most guys, bass fishing or, you know, anything up north, whether it's walleye, muskie, pike, that kind of stuff, most of that tackle transitions into salt water pretty well without too many tweaks or, you know, changes of what you're doing. Now, like, let's be honest, like most bass jigs, most bass tackle will catch trout, redfish, and flounder. Um, you know, it may not be the prettiest or it may not be, you know, the exact best thing for that point in time, but you, it definitely works. 
So don't be afraid to try. Um, and I would say, you know, use social media and use YouTube and other, you know, aspects of technology like that to your advantage to learn. Um, but don't allow the criticism of people on different social media forums. Like I see people all the time on some of these little local forums where it's like they'll ask a question and they get berated with answers that are either just, you know, total BS or people making fun of them, you know, for being in, you know, acting like they're an idiot or something. And it's like, no, like, don't be like that. Come on now. You were, you started off fishing somehow too. Like somebody had to teach you or you had to spend time, you know, learning. And that's, you know, that's, that'd be my final point is like, once you've, once you've learned what works well for a particular situation online, the only way you're going to actually be able to use it successfully is putting in the time. Like, I don't, I don't care what you do. If you don't actually spend time on the water, you know, and testing out and failing and not being afraid to fail, you're not going to catch fish. It just, it is what it is. And even, I, I don't care who you are. Like I can take you to the best charter boat captains up and down the Gulf coast. It's still fishing, not catching. You're still going to have days where you get a big old goose egg and that icebox on the way home. Yep. And, you know, it's like the more time you can spend on the water and, and learn from both the days that you've had success and the days that you've had failure. I think that's another aspect is that we live in a society where, you know, we get so fast paced, you know, living, you know, day to day, trying to make ends meet, taking care of family, taking care of kids, sports, whatever weekend comes along and we fish and, you know, you can have, you use a great example of like, you go have a really successful day. But if you don't take any notes, like I, I recommend a lot of anglers, whether it's on your phone or a notepad or just even just having a conversation at the end of the day. Like one of my favorite things with my fishing buddies, and especially with my wife, like a little bit, a bit of a debrief, um, like what, what went right, what went wrong, what could we improve upon, you know, what could we do different next time, um, compare and contrast notes and, and just help galvanize in your memory bank you know what what you could do next time you're on the water to improve your chances of success and in, that, in, in the long run that will always pay off dividends um that, that's yeah. the best way i think to approach any aspects of fishing whether it's you're trying something brand new for the first time or um and like one of my favorite things to do fishing is explore i i love going to new areas and especially like backwater spots that, you know, God knows the last time another human's been there. Um, I do a lot of freshwater fishing like that on the Scambia and Blackwater where, you know, we may, we may park the truck and walk, you know, a mile or two through the swamp to get to some little slough and, you know, see what's there. Or, you know, we may take the boat, you know, to some, you know, backwater spot that, you know, just, you know, for whatever reason, the high tide that day has got it flooded and let's see what happens or, you know, traveling, you know, you know, an hour to two hours, one way or the other to check out some spot we've never been to. And, and so that, that constantly trying out new areas, that's a great way also for new anglers to learn that, you know, it's okay to fail and still have fun failing because they're seeing a new place. They're getting to check out and explore an area they haven't been to before. And so that's, I think that's always a big plus. Um, but that would probably be my biggest advice to them is don't be afraid of failing. 
Good one. Oh, I'm getting feedback off your computer. That's okay. That's all right. I'm going to make this work. All right. Last uh, three questions for you here. All right. So inspiration-wise, are there any fellow anglers, mentors, authors, or individuals who have inspired your journey and you'd like to give them a shout-out? Absolutely. Um, I have spent – I would, I would recommend this to anybody in the bait-making world. The best investment that you can do is invest in yourself. And what I mean by that is spend money on audiobooks, spend time on different podcasts related to business. Um, I would say if there was one book that a younger version of me could read earlier on, um, it'd be Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Um, from a business aspect, that's you know, that can lead you down an entire rabbit hole of different offers, uh, you know, help out with, you know, different aspects of business. From a fishing perspective, mm, think, think Flip Pallet. Um, I've always been a fan of his. Um, I just, um, Hunt for Big Fish of Larry Dahlberg. Um, that was another big one as a kid. I remember watching his shows where I always thought it was so cool. I think it was the same thing with Flip because he, he showed how to like tie flies. Larry Dahlberg showed how to make different kinds of tackle. Like he'd go out and he'd catch a big muskie or um, pike, or he'd go down to South America and catch some, you know, some big, you know, weird exotic looking fish. And then he'd take you back to his garage and he'd show you like, Hey, this is, you know, this is the tackle I was using. And this is how I made it. And, here, you can make this too, just with these products. And, and so that was a, those are probably from a fishing realm, you know, two of the guys I've always looked up to. Um, and then obviously from like a local perspective, um, I wouldn't be here today about my dad and the whole generation of anglers that he grew up with that were, you know, really on the forefront of fishing technology. Um, you know, so much of what we have today stems from their generation, you know, testing, 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 and pushing the limits and boundaries of what could be done in the fishing world. Um, I think we really take for granted that, you know, recreational fishing, you could argue, you know, recreational fishing for the masses has really only been around for like the last what, 70, 80 years, one, one, one generation, really. Um, you know, before then, it was kind of either, you know, a rich man's sport, recreational fishing, or you were commercial fishing, you know, to bring home, put food on the table. But for the days of just going out, catching fish, especially catch and release, I and mean, if you went back in time and you told somebody from like the, night, the turn of a century that you're going to go catch some fish and you're going to put them back in the stream, <laughs> they'd laugh at you, man. I mean, you know, it, it's technology and the speed at which you know a lot of fishing is changing um we take that for granted um i think i think probably one of the biggest problems to look forward to in the future is a balancing act between getting the next generation involved like we discussed earlier and at the same time managing expectations and limits on conservation and biology um, to promote healthy fisheries populations. Um, I think, I think that's something that we're really lacking right now 
and I know I'll take a lot of heat for this, but so many of our conservation agencies are, they, they react to problems instead of being proactive. And I can speak about that from experiences, having worked with the FWC before and my dad, having worked with them for you know, 35 years, you've got a lot of great biologists that are out there. And also like, um, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, they've got a lot of great biologists on the ground. The problem is that when you start getting into politics, nobody looks good when they start adding harsher and harsher regulations. And so I think from a fishing tackle, but from like a manufacturing perspective, as well as just my own self as a fisherman, I think that's something that anglers all over are going to have to do a better job of saying like, hey, if we want this resource to last for our kids or for our grandkids, you know, not only do we have to get them involved in enjoying it, but also, you know, really growing a mindset of conservation all the way around. Like, yeah, it's okay to go catch this fish, but, you know, do we need to fill the freezer like we used to? Or, you know, is it okay to have a slot size on a particular species or put a, a seasonal bag limit on them? Um, or, you know, should we try and divert more, you know, taxpayer funding to, um, to um, you know, just conservation in general, whether it's doing tagging studies or um, spending money on building new hatcheries. Uh, and it's a real shame that we didn't get our hatchery here downtown. Um, and I wish, you know, more anglers would have spoken up about that. Um, you know, Alabama, you got to give them credit. I mean, look at the floundering the flounder population here along the Gulf Coast. You know, it's really starting to make a comeback in the last year or two. And, um, you know, I, I give a lot of that credit to Alabama and all that they've done and really, you know, leading the way in both conservation and releasing, you know, more flounder, you know, back into the wild for us. And we're getting a lot of spillover about over here on our side. Um, you know, so that's, that's, I think, some of the factors uh, that all anglers, um, it doesn't matter if you're on the Gulf Coast or just, you know, anywhere in the U.S., you've got to be, you know, aware of in the coming years. Um, it doesn't take us very long to wipe out a population of something, uh, especially if all the technology that we have today. I mean, um, you know, whether you look at like some of the big pieces of technology like um, Spotlock with um, any kind of trolling motor, and that's huge. I mean, you know, being able to just take any kind of, you know, small inshore boat, go offshore and park it right on the spot to catch any snapper or grouper you want. That's, you know, that's a skill set of, you know, being able to, you know, hold a boat up over a position that is, you know, slowly being lost. At the same time, you've got, like, I know there's a lot of controversy right now with uh, forward-facing sonar and uh, bass fishing and crappie fishing. And, yeah, it's, it's awesome. But, you know, what's the balance there? Um, you know, as we, as we create better and better tackle and we adopt better technology for boating, there's got to be, uh, you know, the question has to be raised of, okay, is this, is it good for fishing today? But also, you know, is it good for fishing, you know, 10 years from now? You know, what's, what's the balance there? You know, how do we protect our natural resources for the future? I could I could do a whole other podcast just on this issue. I was gonna say, we're gonna go on conservation, man. But uh, well, we're we're gonna get you these last couple here and uh, and continue. So, dude, this has been phenomenal. I I can't keep saying that enough. 
where can our listeners find more of your content, learn from your experiences and stay updated on all the things that you're doing? Um, primarily it's going to be both a combination of Instagram and Facebook. Um, we do a lot of like joint posts cross platform there. Uh, but sometimes we do run things just on Facebook. Um, we are currently working on setting up, we've got I think one YouTube video up right now, but we're setting up a, a YouTube channel and it's specifically going to be tailored towards answering a lot of the really common questions that we get again and again. Um, I end up spending a profane amount of time uh, answering emails about like, hey, when to use this product, you know, what's the best way to rig this, whatever. And so we're going to make a bunch of YouTube videos answering those questions so that I can better, you know, it'll, it'll help my time out in terms of not having to spend so much time on emails as well as being able to give better demonstrations in terms of answering questions about gear and about when to use gear. Um, and I think that'll, that'll tie back also into some different avenues of conservation and some of our tie-ins there. But, um, you know, you can always email us, bpftackle at yahoo.com. Um, my phone number is open to everybody. It's uh, 850-530-2686. Texting is the easiest way to get a hold of me. Got any questions, whether it's, you know, item related, um, or something that we make or uh, questions about getting products into a store or how you order, or even if you're just making your own tackle and you want, you know, ideas or you need tips and tricks about like, hey, I've got a problem pouring something or painting something. Just, you know, hit us up. It's over here for um, keep it open. Good on you. You almost nailed the rest. You almost nailed the last question with that on itself right there, but we're, it's good to have an FAQ taken care of in a video. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> All right. Final question here and I'll get you out of here. What is next for you? Ooh, next. Um, in terms of a shop, the biggest thing we're, we're going to be slowly rolling out a bunch of our jigs and stuff that we have to put on pause part of this year from uh, dealing with insurance. Um, we're going to be reaching out to a lot of our stores. So we've kind of kept this quiet um, so that, you know, there's, there's not as much of a disturbance in what we're selling, but um, we're going to be bringing out a lot of those products back out on the market. Um, in case you've gone to your local taco store, you've seen a lack of bird of prey. Um, it'll only be for a short period of time longer and that'll be all addressed. Um, we're about to be dealing a lot with automation. Um, that's going to be a big factor for us for 2024. Um, we're slow, and this goes back to originally talking to Justin also about different ideas there, but we're, um, we're looking at getting some equipment uh, brought in to help us automate some of the different aspects of our job. And then a lot of semi-automation, um, whether it has to do with like painting, and um, a lot of there's a lot of existing stuff in the packaging world that you know we're just saving up for you know, as soon as you get the capital for buy that and address you know a lot of the stuff that's already out there on the market for packaging different products is pretty we've seen is pretty readily available and I mean, this is something for all tackle manufacturers usually if there's a if there's a way or a reason you see a lot of different tackle stores doing something, there's a good reason behind that. You know, if, every, if everybody in a particular field is packaging their product a certain way or they're doing or making something a certain way, it's probably because they all those companies have gone through the process 
of, you know, tweaking things, testing things out. And so, you know, don't be afraid of, you know, copying what other people are doing because it's, it's probably the most profitable method already out there. Um, so once we, we get through the automation and we start learning about that, really it's going to be a combination of, um, you know, looking to hire on more people and, um, you know, especially the biggest thing is getting a bigger shop. Um, we've about outgrown our, our current shop now and, um, it's been a, it's been such a blessing. We've got, we got a great landlord. Um, it's been a great process of learning what it's like to run a business and uh, outside of a garage. I, and I would recommend anybody who's a bait manufacturer, you know, before you think you're willing to go sink a lot of money in real estate, go rent. Rent for like a year or two. Renting is not bad. Renting allows you to grow your roots and spread out. And there there's a ton of problems. I never envisioned working out of a garage that we faced with renting a building. And those, most of those problems would have definitely carried over had we just gone out and sunk the money into getting a building. And so, you know, being able to iron out those, you know, those little kinks, that's been great. Um, you know, and so now that we've figured out this process of how to work with employees and one of them, you know, and start bringing some different automation there, um, you know, get a bigger building. Um, I think, you know, five years out, we're looking to, you know, open up a true retail shop somewhere here on the north side of Pensacola for anglers who are in like the Beulah, Cantonment area. Um, we're really lacking a bait shop on this side of town. And so that's kind of our long-term goal is to start opening up, you know, something in that direction. Uh, our current shop, just just all your people, we get a lot of people who ask, like, oh, can I come by and see your shop? Uh, unfortunately, no. Because of insurance, we've really got to limit who all comes by. Or unfortunately, it's lead. It's toxic. We, I, in fact, I go first thing tomorrow morning to get my, you know, my quarterly blood draw for, you know, lead level testing. Um, it's it's hot. There's a lot of safety issues there. So we just, we can't, in our current setup, we can't have people over. But you know, you can order online, you can, you know, ask your local bait tackle store if they can order it for you, or, um, you know, see if they don't already have it in stock. Most of the stores along the Gulf Coast, we've got a relationship with, and if there's something that you want to see in, let them know. That's the best thing for us. If you want something in a store, you've got to let the store managers and the store owners know you want to see it. If they keep hearing people say, hey, I want this product from Bird of Prey, <laughs> it gets it in almost every time. Um, that's, that's how it is. Well, Brian, you've been a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much. And everybody, if you come back to the website here and we'll go over to that, but if you need these links, they're going to be back on the Finding Demo Surf Fishing page, whether it's on the transistor or on findingdemosurffishing.com. You'll be able to find all this stuff to go link back to them. And the website is birdofpreyfishingtackle.com. You'll have all the links. You'll be able to reach out to Brian and you should be good. So, bro, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate you. It's been great, really. It's been a lot of fun, man. Thanks, Brian. No problem. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right, ladies and gentlemen, hope you've enjoyed. I mean, this has been a very, very knowledgeable piece on a real deep dive insight onto what Brian does, what his company does, how they do it, why they do it. Um, and I think it answered a few FAQs that it answered a few for me. That's for sure. So 
I appreciate you being here. If this episode helped you, don't forget to share it out there. It, it's the biggest piece in this. One of the reasons I do this podcast, we want you to learn. We want you to catch fish. That's the most important piece. We all learn from each other. Don't hoard the secrets. Help somebody catch a fish. I appreciate you. Love y'all to death. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Finding Demo Surf Fishing. I'm out. Yeah.